All right, Nick. So it's July again, which is a very exciting time because we know that this means that there are new incoming residents to uh, OBGYN. Absolutely. Brand new faces. Welcome to labor and delivery. Welcome to the oncology floor. Welcome to the clinic, wherever you are. We hope that you're getting welcomed into OBGYN. And we want to make sure that you know about a great resource in OBG First and the OBG Core. So the OBG core, as many of your senior residents will tell you, is absolutely free to all residents. So we wanted to make sure that you know about that. And then also, again, you also will get access for free if you are a resident to OBG first, as well as the labor and delivery book from the OBG project. There are tons and tons of great resources through the OBG project. You can find them on their website at obgproject.com. But if you're interested in getting signed up for this premium product of theirs for absolutely free for all four years of residency, head over to our website, creagsrivercoffee.com, check out the sidebar, and get signed up today. All right, guys, welcome back. This is Nick. This is Faye. And this is Creag's. Over, Over coffee. coffee. All right. So, Faye, today we're going to start on a two-part episode of, um, unfortunately, some kind of scary topics, but also essential topics. We're going to talk surgical injury today, what to do when you hurt the bladder, the bowels, and the ureters. Um, so what are our learning objectives for part one today? Yeah, so today uh, we're going to review the incidents and risk factors for injury to surrounding structures in OBGYN surgery. Um, and then we're going to understand the initial steps to take at the time of concern for injury, uh, specifically for the bladder, and then demonstrate knowledge of appropriate technique and follow-up care for patients with bladder injuries from surgery. Uh, we will be having some sources for both bladder uh, and ureter injuries, as well as bowel injuries, and we're going to post that on our website. All right, Nick, so, you know, let's start off. Uh-oh, we have uh, a surgical injury in the bladder or ureter or the bowel um, in OBGYN. What do we do next? Yeah, so, you know, I think at this point, if you're a resident or, you know, I guess it's the new academic year, so maybe you haven't done this yet, but surgical injuries happen. We talk in our informed consent discussions, as we talked about on the show before, we'll talk about risks of surgery, like bleeding, infection, and then there's that kind of catch-all language of damage to surrounding structures. The surrounding structures are typically the bladder, the bowel, and the ureters. Now, the bladder is the most common thing that gets injured in OBGYN surgery. It happens in about three per thousand cesarean deliveries and in about 1% overall of major GYN surgeries. The bowel and ureters get injured less than 1% of the time in major GYN surgeries and are less common to be injured in C-section too. Um, but Again, all of these things live nearby the structures that we tend to operate on, the uterus, the ovaries. Um, so it's important to know about them. And then if it is something that we can repair primarily, it's good to have the idea of the techniques down. The best prevention for injury, though, is always preparation. So the preparation to do here is you got to know your anatomy. Be sure to check out our anatomic meditation on pelvic vasculature that we've done before, and then we've already had some requests for some future anatomic meditation episodes, so we promise we're working on those and hope to get those out in the near future. 
But anyways, Faye, um, aside from a lack of preparation, I guess, what would potentially be some risk factors for intraoperative injury? Sure. So really, you know, risk factors are anything that can increase surgical complexity, essentially. So for example, if you have a bigger or more extensive surgery, for example, so like a hysterectomy in particular compared to potentially a more minor surgery like a tubal ligation or a salpingectomy. Um, Things like obesity can also increase surgical complexity and increase your risk factor for intraoperative injury, as well as things like age or chronic medical conditions that might limit exposure, particularly in laparoscopy if there's less distension, for example. Also emergency surgeries, there are more frequent bladder injuries and stat C-sections, for example as well as second stage arrests. And then also things like adhesive disease from prior surgeries, infection, or trauma. Again, things that are going to limit your visibility as well as distort the anatomy. Patients with congenital or acquired anatomical differences are also at higher risk for intraoperative injury. And again, that's just because there is going to be a difference in anatomy that your surgeon may not be as used to. And then finally, oncology cases where there's invasive disease and again, altered vasculature and altered structures. So knowing those risk factors then, Nick, what should I do if I identify something that is or may be injured? Yeah. So with this, you know, number one is if it's safe to do so, you want to pause what you're doing and evaluate it when you cause the injury. Um, It's always hard to go back and try and find that thing if you leave from it. So again, if it's safe, pause and take a look. Start calling for assistance. So again, your senior colleagues or consultants, if you feel like you're going to need them for what's going on. And I think one of the things where, as we talked about, surgical complexity comes into play. But if you're awaiting assistance, but you need to move on, like for instance, you are in the middle of a C-section, it looks like it's an accreta and boom, I feel like I hit the bladder or there might be a little bit of an injury to the bowel. It's decerosalized and I need to look at that. You can do something like use a tagging suture to mark the area of concern. So what this essentially is, is you're placing a small, brightly colored suture, something like a 2O or 3O dyed polysorb or dyed vicryl suture, just there so that way it's, again, colored so you can identify it and then leave a long tail there at the suspected site of injury. That ultimately is going to be a lot easier to find than trying to run the bowel once more and finding that little spot. Again, ideally pause and evaluate, but in more urgent, emergent type of scenarios, this is one technique that you can use to be like, okay, we're going to come back later. And then finally, with injuries, you want to identify as best you can what you think the mechanism and extent of an injury is, because especially if you're calling for a consultant, you want to be able to describe what you think has happened so that way they start to get a sense of what they might need to do for a repair. So for instance, is it just a serosal tear of the bladder or bowel, or is mucosa exposed? Are there no contaminations that are occurring, like gastric or intestinal contents that get spilled? And then I think really importantly too, was this like a cold cut thing? Like did you use a scalpel or scissors and get into it? Or is there a risk for thermal injury? And thermal injuries may not be immediately apparent how expansive they are. And so that's an important thing to be able to recognize and to be able to describe if you have a concern for. Now, Faye, some people might be hearing us talk about this and be like, ugh, do I really have to 
deal with these injuries. And I thought I heard too, like, can't I just like leave some things unrepaired and they'll heal on their own? I hope nobody's thinking about that for every single injury. Um, but is there any truth to that? Yeah, so um, surprisingly there are. So in some cases of bladder and bowel injury, if they're very small, if it's non-thermal, some of these injuries can actually be left unrepaired. And an example would be, you know, if you have a varies needle and you have a clean poke of a small intestine or a bladder, so you've created a tiny, tiny hole, sometimes these actually don't need to be repaired and they can actually just be left on their own and they will heal very well on their own. However, a failure to recognize injury or leaving an injury that's too large or going to expand due to things like thermal damage, if you leave these unrepaired, then you are going to risk complications. Um, and it's important that we actually recognize these complications. So early on, you might see things like copious wound drainage. There could be abdominal pain, um, for example, due to things like urinary ascites because there's actually urine draining into the um, abdominal cavity. Um, the patients can have fever, ileus, and peritonitis. Um, and the big thing here is that we need to have a high index of suspicion in the postoperative period for a patient having an unrecognized injury, especially if they're having lots of drainage from the incision or a lot of unexpected pain. You do have to ask yourself, hey, could there have been some type of injury that we didn't recognize during the surgery? Delayed um, signs of having an intra-abdominal injury could be things like recurrent urinary tract infections or urinary incontinence. Um, patients may have things like pelvic pain or even fistula formation. And this is, of course, a major dreaded complication of unrecognized injury. Um, so, you know, quick detour here, right? Um, I'm sure that a lot of our Eurogyne colleagues or um, residents who are, you know, currently on their Eurogyne rotations, you guys may have noticed that when we're doing a um, a sling procedure or a TVT procedure, that sometimes you can put those trocars right through the bladder and cause cystotomies. And the question is, you know, well, how come, you know, these procedures, when we create that cystotomy, these can stay unrepaired? And this is because these injuries occur extraperitoneally in the retropubic space. Simple extraperitoneal injuries almost always heal on their own and can usually be managed with just catheter drainage overall. Um, and these usually will not form fistulas compared to those that are intra-abdominal. Intra-abdominal injuries should be repaired, and these are at risk for fistula formation. And so we've essentially provided the two windows of injury, right, for fistulas to form at the time of a hysterectomy with the opening to the vagina. So you can cause a fistula between the bladder to the vagina, so vesicovaginal fistula at the time of hysterectomy. You can cause a ureteral vaginal um, fistula, which is ureter to the vagina, again, at the time of hysterectomy. And there's also the possibility of an enterovaginal fistula, so bowel to vagina. And these, you know, are usually not seen with extraperitoneal injuries, but can be seen with intraperitoneal injuries. All right. So, you know, I think, Nick, we've kind of run through now talking about um, identifying injuries, recognizing them after the fact. Let's now specifically talk about bladder injuries. I think these are probably going to be the ones that are most common for us. So talk to me a little bit about bladder injuries and what we should do about them. These are, again, definitely the most common injury. And 
even within this, most commonly injuries to the bladder are going to occur in the dome. Now that makes sense anatomically, right? You think about like how that uterus and bladder are interacting with each other, where that vesicouterine peritoneum is, um, and the bladder dome is just sitting right there. So even somebody who's had like a prior C-section or two, usually there's some scarring, and that's the place where you end up getting into it. Rarely, though, injuries can occur lower going into the trigone or the base of the bladder. And when you get into the trigone, this is the danger zone for ureteral injury. So if you suspect an injury to the bladder, definitely evaluate the extent. If it's limited to the dome, repair is usually possible without consultative assistance. And this is something that we should definitely be comfortable with as OBGYNs. If the injury looks more extensive or you're unsure, then definitely get your urology or urogynecology folks involved so that way they can take a look and just make sure. One of the things that I have learned in my own journey through complications is that actually sometimes with your cystotomy, you can use it to look into the bladder and see your relative anatomy. So, you know, once the bladder is open, you can actually look inside there and you can see your Foley sitting in there. You can visualize those ureteral openings sometimes from up above and actually see the efflux. Um, Often you can tell if you're within the dome versus the trigone, and sometimes looking, again, not just at the outside of the bladder, but the inside can tell you a lot of good information too. Again, like for instance, if you're within a centimeter or two of those ureteral openings, it's probably worth having a consult come by, right? Yeah. Um, so kind of, again, don't forget that it's not just looking at the outside, but looking at the inside of the bladder too can give you some good information. Mm-hmm. Faye, what exactly should we do, again, if we are suspecting the most common injury, those dome injuries? How do we repair it? Yeah, a lot of the times, you know, with a dome injury, we can repair these on our own. And usually what you'll do is two layers with some type of absorbable suture, typically using like a 2-0 or a 3-0 suture. Um, usually what we'll, like I will use Vicryl, for example. Um, I really caution against people using non-absorbable or very delayed absorbable sutures because that means that there's going to be suture material that's going to stay in the bladder and that is going to just act as a nidus for infection. So definitely use something that is absorbable. The first layer should be a mucosal closure. Basically, you can do it in a simple running fashion, but not locked and close up that mucosal layer. And then your second layer is going to be an imbricating layer over the serosa and the muscularis, not entering the mucosa. So basically, you're going to skim those two layers to try and limit the amount of suture material in the bladder. And by having those two layers, you're going to hopefully reinforce that dome injury. After your repair, you're going to check the integrity of the bladder repair while you still have access to the abdomen. So basically, you want to make sure that the bladder isn't going to leak after you have put uh, your repair in. And a variety of materials can be used to backfill the bladder to see if the uh, bladder is watertight. But generally, you want something that's going to have color in it so you can see a leak if it's present. Um, I don't suggest just using like sterile saline, for example, because you're not going to know, you know, is that just uh, some fluid in the abdomen or is that actually sterile saline leaking out from the bladder itself. So um, a lot of times what it, what you'll use is dependent on what your hospital has. So, so some hospitals will have sterile milk or formula, which really works, um, though that may make your cystoscopy a little bit cloudy later on when you're taking a look later on. Um, so you can use that. And then the other thing is to use crystalloid with methylene blue or indigo carmine or fluorescein added into it so you can very clearly see the dye leaking. 
A lot of folks may also choose to perform a cystoscopy at the same time or after backfilling. And the cystoscopy is really just more to check your ureteral patency. So, you know, if you're not sure, if you think you might be close to the trigone, you're going to have a hard time determining the bladder repair integrity overall from a cystoscopy view. If your injury was in the dome and very far away from the ureters and you can actually see the ureters from above, like Nick was talking about, where you can actually look inside the bladder, then a cystoscopy may not actually be totally necessary because then it's unlikely that you're going to kink those ureters during the time of your repair. Postoperatively, once you are sure that you know the bladder is closed and it's watertight, um, you're going to need to put a Foley in for that patient, and that's going to stay in usually some time between seven to fourteen days, um, followed by a void trial and avoiding cystogram to be performed um, to again demonstrate that the bladder repair has uh, good integrity. But let's talk about the other type of injury, Nick. What happens if you unfortunately get one of those dreaded trigone injuries? Yeah, so. I'll go ahead and say here, these are not ones that I would expect anybody who is a general OBGYN or really even, you know, for folks like me uh, who primarily do obstetric surgery that I'm going to be looking to fix on my own. These are ones that you definitely shouldn't have any shame in calling your urology or your gynecology colleagues to try and help out with. Um, Because when you get into the trigone, you're really close to your ureters and where they come into the bladder. And the primary thing with these trigone injuries is honestly going to be assessing the status of the ureters because they may have been damaged when you injured the trigone as well, or your repair may ultimately cause them to get kinked and be damaged during that process. So With this, you're going to want to do something to be able to assess the connection of the ureters to the bladder. So again, you're going to give one of those coloring agents of urine. Rather than doing it as a backfill, though, you're going to end up giving it IV, something like methylene blue, indigo carmine, or fluorescein. And usually you'll give that alongside a small dose of IV Lasix as well. If you see dye entering the bladder, but it's not entering the retroperitoneal or the intra-abdominal space, likely you don't have a ureter injury, which is great. But obviously, if you've transected the ureter and then you see dye spilling into the abdomen, then you've got a ureter cut somewhere on top of the trigone injury. Now, urologists who are consulting for you with a trigone injury are probably going to go ahead and place stents as well to evaluate the ureters when they come in. Placing those stents actually is helpful in the triage because if it's relatively easy to do so, then you know then that my ureters are probably pretty good, and then I can feel them as, or the urologist, I should say, can feel them as they put the trigone back together. We'll talk more about ureteral injuries and the triage and what the stents can help you discern in the next episode. Um, But for right now, know that those stents kind of can go in place to help you with the repair. And they may remain in place postoperatively to help keep those ureters patent. As even if you didn't have a ureteral injury initially, the nearby trigone swelling during the postoperative phase can ultimately obstruct them. And so sometimes they just have to remain in place just to prevent that. All right, Faye. Well, I think that does it for part one of our surgical injury series talking about the bladder. Let's try and summarize real quick. 
Sure. So I think to start us off, we talked about how surgical injuries, of course, can happen in OBGYN and that it definitely should be part of your informed uh, consent process when you are taking someone to surgery. The things that we need to watch out for are bladder, bowel, and ureters, with the bladder being the most common type of injury. And the best prevention overall is knowing our anatomy. In terms of risk factors for injury, really think about things that increase surgical complexity. So bigger surgeries like hysterectomy, obesity, age, or chronic medical conditions that limit exposure, um, emergency surgeries, adhesive disease, congenital or anatomic differences that are acquired, and then of course oncologic cases too. If you do identify something that may be injured or is injured, try and pause and evaluate it then and call for your assistance to come uh, then. But if you need to move on because it's some sort of emergent case, like a bleeding accreta, you can use a tagging suture, again, a dyed 2O or 3O polysorber vicryl typically, and leave a long tail so that way it's easy to find later on. Describe an injury for your consultants. Do you think that the extent is pretty minor or do you think that it was more significant? Do you think that there's any contamination, like for instance, spillage of GI contents? And then is it a cold cut injury or is there the potential for thermal injury based on what you were seeing? In terms of types of injuries, there are some that can be left unrepaired if they're very small and they're non-thermal injuries, like if you're injuring the bladder or bowel with just a various needle, for example. However, we do have to have high indexes of suspicion for um, damage that or injuries that we did not recognize during the time of surgery by looking for both early and delayed signs. Early signs being things like copious wound drainage, abdominal pain, fever, ileus peritonitis, and delayed signs being things like recurrent UTIs, urinary incontinence, pelvic pain, and fistula formation. In terms of bladder injuries, the most common injuries are to the dome of the bladder, which makes a lot of sense anatomically, though injuries can occur lower into the trigone or base of the bladder. Remember that when you have made a cystotomy, though unfortunate, you can also use it then to try and help see some relative anatomy, visualize your foley, visualize the ureteral openings from above to determine whether you're in the dome versus the trigone and whether you might need to call urology assistance if you realize, huh, I'm actually a little bit lower than I thought I was. Dome injuries can be repaired in a two-layer closure. Typically, you're using a 2-O or 3-O vicryl or polysorb type of suture. The first layer is going to be the mucosal closure in a simple running fashion, but don't lock it. And then the second layer is going to be an imbricating layer that incorporates the serosa and muscularis not entering the mucosa so you don't have the material in the bladder. After you repair it, check the integrity while you still have access to the abdomen by backfilling with some sort of colored solution, sterile milk or crystalloid dyed with one of our usual things. And then you can use cystoscopy um, as well, but it's not always necessary depending on the site of injury and what you were able to evaluate prior to closure. Postoperatively, a Foley needs to stay in place for 7 to 14 days and avoiding cystogram should be performed to demonstrate integrity once that foley is removed. If you have a trigone injury, this is when you really should be calling your urology or your urogynecology colleagues to come and help you out. Um, in terms of assessing the status of the ureters, 
Um, what we'll need to do is first give some type of IV dye like methylene blue, indigo carmine, or fluorescein with a small dose of Lasix. If we see dye entering the bladder, but not in the retroperitoneal or intraabdominal space, then there's likely no ureter injury. Some urologists may go ahead and place stents overall to evaluate the ureters, and they may actually leave the stents in place while they're repairing. And sometimes they may leave them in postoperatively to prevent um, to make sure that the ureters are patent as nearby tissues will swell and obstruct the area. All right, I think that brings us to the end of this part one for um, our bladder, bowel, and ureter injuries and how to deal with them, Nick. So once again, this is Faye. This is Nick. And this has been Creogs Over Coffee. So guys, if you enjoyed the podcast today, head over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, whatever your podcatcher is, give us a five-star rating and review. You can find us on social media on Twitter at CreogsRiverCoff1, on Facebook and Instagram at CreogsRiverCoffee. And if you want to support the show, you can go ahead and go into our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CreogsRiverCoffee. You can find show notes for this episode as well as all of our previous episodes and that Rosh Review Question of the Week on our website, CreogsRiverCoffee.com. And if you have questions for us, have a suggestion or a correction for the show, or just want to say hi, go ahead and email us at CreogsRiverCoffee at gmail.com.